when I was young, when I was young, I had a man named Richard who was part of my church family. And Richard was a doctor uh, and he was amazing. He was thoughtful and kind and uh, was one of those that got almost a perfect score on the MCATs and just sailed through everything. On Sundays and on Wednesdays, every time that we saw Richard, he was just he was the consummate Christian. You know, he was so thoughtful. Um, he would even donate his time during the summer. He would go to Haiti and he would work in free medical clinics uh, and donate his time and pay for all the expenses. He wouldn't even raise money. He would just write checks out of his own account. And so we all thought Richard was utterly amazing. We didn't know that Richard was beating his wife at home. We didn't know that he was saying the most foul things to his children. We only saw the kind, thoughtful Richard on Sundays and on Wednesdays in his tailored suit because back then we wore suits because we loved Jesus. Y'all aren't laughing at that. Like, we wore suits because we loved Jesus, okay? So, um, <laughs> that's right. Nice. Richard, Richard was an embodiment of what we call the principle of the iceberg. Your life, my life is like an iceberg. And there's the 10% that's above the surface that we can see easily and readily with your personality and things. And then there's the 90% that's below the surface. And sometimes that's not easy to see. Richard never dealt with the stuff that was below the surface. We didn't know that Richard's dad had been abusive himself. We didn't know that Richard had been told his whole life by his father, you're such a loser, you'll never amount to anything, which is why he excelled so much in school because he was gonna prove his dad wrong. We didn't know any of that background. We didn't know any of that stuff. And it's the stuff below the surface that if you don't deal with it can rob you of a rich and satisfying life. It's the principle of the iceberg. Here's the thing. God wants to change you and me from the inside out, which means that God wants us to go beneath the surface and deal with some of the stuff that's below the water so that we can have a rich and satisfying life. Why am I teaching this series? Well, because one of my below the surface issues for me is what I like to call emotional stuntedness. Uh, a couple of my kids, their nickname for me is Spock. Right. So for the, a couple of years ago, uh, Jenny actually confronted me in a loving wife way. You know, sometimes your spouse is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to tell you that. And uh, she called me out and she said, Max, you aren't ever aware of what you're feeling. And this isn't working. And unless you fix this and let and I can't do anything about this this is you unless you do something about this stuff beneath the surface I'm out like it was one of those moments in marriage and I was like whoa, whoa right so here's the thing the only emotion that I could express for the longest time was anger because I had childhood stuff in my background the way I dealt with it is I just stuffed all the emotions deep inside 
and I didn't allow myself to feel them, and I didn't allow myself to express them. So what happened is in my 20s, if I was happy, I would show anger. If I was disappointed that somebody had, you know, not followed through or let me down, instead of being disappointed, I would be what? Angry. Like anger is the only emotion that I could express. That's like being, having a black and white television when there's 4K HD, right? Like, <laughs> okay, it just doesn't work. So if you're hearing this message or any other message in this series and the only thought that you have is, man, my husband needs to be here. Man, my wife needs to be here. Man, I am sending my sister-in-law a link to the podcast because holy cow, this is her train wreck that she is. God bless her. Like, I just want you to know that you might be missing something. And here's the something. <laughs> Here, here's the something. All of us, all of us are emotionally unhealthy in one way or another. All of us. All of us are emotionally unhealthy, and God wants to change that. Here's my bottom line today. You cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. You cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And this idea and all the other ideas over the next eight weeks, again, are from Pete Scazzerzo's work in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Buy a copy of the book. It's more than what I can cover on a Sunday. Emotional immaturity is not something new. Emotional immaturity that gets in the way of trusting God, that robs you of a rich and satisfying life, this is not a 2020 America problem. I'm reading through the Bible again with a different reading plan, and I'm in Genesis right now. Can I just tell you, Abraham is totally messed up. Abraham's son is totally messed up. Abraham's family is a train wreck of issues below the surface of the water. And if you don't believe me, Abraham does something terrible with his wife that his son turns around and does the same exact thing. She's my sister. That's a hint, by the way. Like, just the most amazing stuff. But we're not going to focus on Abraham. We're going to focus on a man from the book of 1 Samuel the first king of Israel, Saul, King Saul. The Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone else, okay? Which meant that he's like Paul, our bass player. You can spot him a mile away. You know exactly where he is. He stood out like a, outside the city gates. There was everybody and then there was Saul and you could see Saul a mile away. But that's not how Saul saw himself. When he's uh, approached by Samuel, he says, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my clan is the least of all the tribes of Benjamin. So we're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and I wanna read this passage and then I wanna draw some things out from it. And it's uh, 1 Samuel 15, seven through 24. So just hear this, hear this story. Saul slaughtered the uh, Amal Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur. He captured Agag, etc., the Amalekite king, uh, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king. He's not been loyal to me, and he's refused to obey my command. Samuel was deeply moved when he heard this, so that he cried to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, 
Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself, and then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I've carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all this bleeding of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I, but I did obey. Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I, I brought back King Agai, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, the goats, and the cattle, and the plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. I want to draw some things out from this encounter. Saul is told to go into this place and kill and destroy everything. That's what he's told to do. And if you've got questions, we should have coffee this week. But that's the command that was given to Saul. And in 1 Samuel 15, it says, Saul and his men spared. The Hebrew word there is a, uh, it's a singular verb, which means that Saul is the actor. Saul gave the command, the troops carried it out. It was Saul's decision not to obey completely what God had asked him to do. Samuel is so disturbed by the news that Saul has failed uh, to obey God that he, that he prays all night. He cries out to the Lord. And I wonder, is it because Samuel is disappointed in Saul? Is it because Samuel is remembering God saying, don't worry, they've rejected me as king. It has nothing to do with you. It's the fact that they're just kind of a rebellious people. Like, I, I wonder what's churning in Samuel that causes him to pray all night. And then, of course, Saul does not do what he was commanded. And there are some verses that clue us into some of the stuff below the surface. And the first one is in verse 12. Saul set up a monument to himself. I'm gonna let you in on something. If you're a leader of an organization or a nation and you make a statue to yourself, there's stuff beneath the surface. It's... Abe Lincoln never built anything to himself. You know, if after you die, people do that to honor you, that's different. But if when you're living, you erect a big, woo, I'm awesome, kind of a thing, you've got stuff below the surface, okay? And that's exactly what Saul did. And then in verse 24, Saul says, I was afraid of the people. His language is... is communicating that Saul's concerned about what people think to a degree that weighs more, matters more than what God says or what God sees. And then in verse 17, even 
the prophet Samuel is calling this out. Although you may think little of yourself, are you not king of Israel? I almost hear in this, this, this quality from Samuel of, look, you think you're nobody, but God called you. God anointed you king. Lean into that. Lean into the identity that God has given you. You know, why are you still reaching down for this stuff of inadequacy? Where is that coming from? And, and then in verse 30, Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but at least honor me before the people. He's more concerned about what it will look like than the fact that God has rejected him. Like, it's the most amazing thing. And I learned something new for me, uh, this go-round in studying this passage, uh, and it's Robert Alter's three-volume translation and commentary. He says, the Hebrew there is literally, Samuel turned back from Saul. I always thought that Samuel just went ahead and, and went along to the sacrifice. I don't think that's how that played out. I think Samuel, the, the Hebrew, I think this guy's right. Samuel literally walked. And the very thing that Saul wanted to avoid the most, public humiliation, was right there in front of his face. Bill Arnold, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, he says that God rejects Saul because Saul had rejected God. And even though uh, Saul had the freedom to lean into God's calling and anointing, Saul chose instead to listen to the voices in his head telling him that he was inadequate, telling him that he was a nobody. If we were to look at an iceberg of Saul's life, I think these are some things that would probably pop up. The text cues us into this, right? There's an aspect of Saul that feels not enough. There is an aspect of Saul that feels inadequate of not being enough that drives some of the things that he does. Again, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Pete Scazzerzo lists 10 ways that emotional immaturity can rear its head in your life and my life spiritually. The first is using God to run from God. Uh, this is where you fill your life with Bible studies. And I memorized the entire chapter of John 14. But even though I've never forgiven my dad, I'm not going to talk about that or address that. But look at me, I've memorized John 14. So you use God to run from God. It's a thing, people do it. Ignoring feelings of anger, sadness, and fear. You seem angry to me. Oh, I'm not angry. No, really, you said, no, it's nothing wrong, right? You know, it, it feeling is uh, dying to the wrong things, right? Uh, you cut off friendships, you avoid joy, music or beauty or laughter, but you embrace self-protectiveness, defensiveness, lack of vulnerability, judgmentalism. Denying the past's impact on the present. Uh, these are the folks that are like, Oh, there were some things in my childhood, but it's no big deal. We all have stuff. I'm over it. Really? It doesn't seem that way. No, I'm over it. <laughs> um, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments so that the only time you think of God or aware of God is when you're doing the God stuff. I'm in God's house. God's here. Woo! But when you're shopping, whew, God's nowhere to be felt, seen, heard, thought of. 
dividing life into secular and sacred, doing a lot of things for God instead of being with God. You tend to evaluate your spiritual maturity by what you're doing for God. Hey, I went on a missions trip or, you know, look at me, I'm on the clean team at church, woo! Instead of the kind of person that you're becoming, right? Uh, Spiritualizing away conflict. Um, In other words, not facing conflict at all. You smooth over disagreements, tension. Uh, I'm just gonna trust the Lord on this, you'll say. Uh, covering over broken or uh, living without limits. Yeah, living without limits. Uh, people say of you, you try to do it all or you bite off more than you can chew. Um, living without limits. And then lastly, judging the spiritual journey of others. You find yourself occupied, overly occupied with other people's faults, other people's issues, but you ignore the stuff that's beneath your own ice, you know, beneath the surface in your own life. Saul says this, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. Was that true? No, it wasn't true. Saul's inability to face what was beneath the surface in his life brought about death and destruction. And what's true of Saul is true of you and me. Let me ask a couple of questions. Where in your life have you been going through the motions of offerings and sacrifices. And, and let me suggest some things. If, if there's a part of your life right now where you're making decisions and doing things because you're afraid of what other people will think, that's a way of going through the motions with offerings and sacrifices. If, if, you're, if you're one way with God's people, like Richard was when I was a young man, and another way at home, that's going through the motions with offerings and sacrifices. Um, if you don't have a regular place in your life where you're hearing God's voice, it's, an, it's another way to go through the motions of offerings and sacrifices. And then what's one step that Saul could have taken to become aware of his iceberg? And what might be one positive step for you? I try to make things practical, so how can you take this home? First and foremost, when you experience conflict with someone, pause. If you've got, if, it, if you're going at it with your significant other, and it's, I'm just categorizing it. Uh, in my house, it's more like, okay. But if, if you've got that kind of conflict, right? Pause. What am I feeling right now and why? What is really bothering me? See, conflict in key relationships, if it's with your spouse or a family member or your boss or a coworker, is an indicator that there's stuff beneath the, the surface of the water. It's a, hey, might want to look under the hood kind of a thing, right? So pause, just pause and ask, what am I feeling? What's really bothering me? For some of us, we need to change our thinking about emotions. If you grew up Baptist or Catholic or conservative Pentecostal, you may have assumed or been taught that some emotions are good and Jesus-like, some emotions are bad and sinful. And if you feel those things, you will go to hell and burn there. So as a result, anytime you're angry or frustrated or those kind of things, you're like, oh, I'm not feeling it. I'm not going to hell. (laughs) And so... Whoa, 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 back the truck up. Uh, So 
uh, in some circles, you were actually told to deny your feelings. So I remember in, in my Baptist upbringing, we always had the choo-choo train. So fact before feeling, put the fact. I don't really feel loved by God. Doesn't matter. The fact is God loves you. Uh, okay, so right. There's that disconnect that happens. So you might need to change your thinking about emotions. Uh, and then lastly, listen to your feelings and listen to God. God thinks, you think. God wills, you will. God feels, you feel. It's because you're made in the image of God. You're like God in these ways. So accepting emotions as a gift from God is a great place to start. Uh, so learn the language of emotions. Name them. Uh, this is why you'll often feel better when you've talked through something with a friend, even though the situation hasn't changed or your fundamental feelings haven't changed, because you've, what you've done is you've named them. Now, for those of you that are a little younger and spend, or you spend a large, almost all your free time is in front of a screen, I want to ask you to do something from time to time. Put the screen away. Here's why. Uh, it's good to be alone from time to time with your own thoughts because that's how you begin to understand or see or be able to name what's below the surface. And when you always have a screen in front of you or you always have earbuds in your ears, it's very difficult to kind of identify and name and have any kind of clarity about that stuff that's beneath the surface of the water. Does this make sense? So. The reason that we listen to our feelings and we listen to God is that we want to name them so that once we know what they are, we can decide in, in, through the leading of the Holy Spirit what to do with them, right? But you can't know what to do with them if you don't know what they are or why they're there, right? In, in the book, Cry of the Soul by Tremper Longman, he says this, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They're the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We're frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal, honest, and vulnerability before God. If you don't believe that's true, just read through the Psalms. The Psalms is undiluted, unfiltered, raw, emotional honesty. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. Once again, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Here's the good news. The journey to emotional health begins by naming, allowing yourself to name what you're feeling and allowing yourself to feel what you're feeling. No, we're not led by our feelings. So you're Americans and you live in America and right now the spirit of the age is whatever you feel, just go with it. Oh, wait a minute. I'm saying identify it, know what it is and know why it's there. Let yourself be led by the Holy Spirit. Let yourself be led by Jesus. Jesus leads, we follow. But knowing and naming are a good step in that process so that you can love God with 100% of you, not just the top 10%. And you can love others around you, not just with the top 10%, but with 100% of you. 